This morning's message is, we must magnify the Lord our God. And in that magnification of the Lord our God, He gets greater, He gets larger in our lives as we decrease. Uh, the reading scripture was from John 3 and 30. He must increase, but I must decrease, is what John said. And we know John is one of the greatest prophets to ever live. Uh, Jesus himself made the statement, there's none greater than John born among women. There, there was none greater than John. But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And sometimes we look to what is great or what's large in our lives or whatever. What we're looking at today in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, that I, as we talked Wednesday night, I was telling you about uh, a Thursday, whatever day we met, uh, the magnification of God and different personifications that are used in the Word of God to personalize creation and the things of creation, uh, animated things. And I tell you about anthropomorphism, uh, anthro water. Uh, without water, I'm getting tied up in that. But the giving of human characteristics, uh, the contribution of human characteristics to God, using to describe Him and giving Him characteristics as of hand, arms, and eyes and different things about God and those as we see those descriptions it's uh, it's it's beyond it's not a composite image of God because that's why he tells us to make not any graven image of God for God is a spirit those that worship him has to worship him in spirit and truth so the symbolism whether it's the symbolisms that used or some type of something of uh, animal descriptions or something that's used for God. It's just to speak to us in a language that we can understand to bring God before us. And we're looking at God as a man today, but as a very big man, because we know Jesus Christ, even him, God incarnate. In other words, Jesus Christ himself was a man. And that's what we look at him as a man, but he was not a mere man, not just a, a mere man. He was the son of God. Now, in saying this, we looking and we know all the scriptures testify of Christ. And we were looking at the 12th verse of that scripture, and it gave us a description to put, put, put a word picture in our mind. And it says... Who had measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who had made it out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills thereof? Uh, verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a, in a bucket and are counted as small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. We're trying to, you can't quantify God by size or measurements or anything, but 
to get some kind of ideal in your mind that it's beyond us making a, a comparison. There's no comparison, but just imagine him weighing the waters of the earth in the hollow of his, of his hand. The waters of the earth, and we know three quarters of the earth is water. So that would be a great hand. That would be, um, and no wonder we read the scripture where it says, him who God holds in his hands, the devil in hell couldn't pluck him out or whatever. The strength and the vastness of that. The put uh, a mag- uh, magnified uh, magnitude of God that's infinite, an uh, infinite God, it, the mind can't comprehend. The comprehension of God is behind us. That's why we preach God as a concept, the concept of God. Now, whether we have a faulty, a false concept of God, it's due to the preaching of the Word of God. That's why He had given us a language of words. And in, in, in those words, He had given us His Word to comfort us give us reassurance in the words and one thing he said peculiar about his word he says his words are spirit is life as Paul was telling Timothy it's capable of making us wise unto salvation in other words the deliverance and the assimilation of his word can give us wisdom a saving wisdom of God it says, wise unto salvation. In other words, a process of coming to God and being saved. That, that's what his word has the capabilities of doing. We have to be disciples of Jesus Christ to get to God because he says, no man coming unto the Father but by me. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Now, uh, my first point here, of a necessity there has to be a new birth we're talking about a spiritual man versus a natural or carnal man and I said that Jesus Christ was born a baby in the manger and he grew and the spirit was poured out on him beyond measure or without measure but that he was a man but he couldn't even possess all of the attributes of God as a man to where when Peter asked him, uh, the disciples asked him what was the time of his coming, he said, only the Father knew that that was within the Father's purview. That wasn't within, within his purview or knowledge to know at what time and season God had placed in that restoration of that day. So we see that Jesus Christ as a man, he got tired and he rested. That Jesus Christ ate and he did all these things. So there's the second Adam. We call him the second man Adam because as a man, his example was to us as becoming sons of God, how to... He gave us an example to to be born into the God family. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that that was our way to the Father, following him, taking up our cross, and it would be a denial of self in following after him. So there is a path, there is a way to God, 
It is through Jesus Christ in his teachings. His words, the power of life and death, lie in the words spoken. And speech is a very dangerous thing. That's one of the things we see being misused and abused here in the United States of America. That freedom of speech. Speech carries a whole lot of things that we don't realize. And that, that that's what God does to his people. He had gave them oral instructions, but he wrote down his commandments. He wrote down his words. He inscribed them on two tablets and gave them unto Moses. And those was his commandments to live by. You know, in other words, those was his statutes, his precepts. But they wasn't capable of giving life in there. It wasn't any life in those. Those showed us our transgressions against God. That 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 showed us, uh, uh, gave us something to be aware of. That was have to be graven on our hearts. God would come back later on and make that a part of our nature. Is to keep His commandments. That's part of loving God. That that's the way to love God is to keep His commandments. That's a reciprocal action that we do. Now. As with all the man's gathering and understanding and intellect, knowledge is not a way to God, not secular knowledge, not just knowing. Not just the idea of knowing uh, that you can comprehend or read something, and no matter how many textbooks people create and seven-step programs or 12-step programs or whatever, these can't get you to God. As he told Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews and you don't know this, that you must needs be born again. The new birth, you have to be born again to be a son of God. Now this is a spiritual birth. This is an action God's spirit accomplishes in us. This is an action that Jesus Christ, that skilled surgeon, and a a sermon on a skilled surgeon one time. He gives us a new heart. A heart to obey God. A heart to love God. A heart that's a pliable heart to where he's in control of the heart. And I told you, the heart is analogous of the heart is the mind. It's the seat of the understanding. It's the noose. It's not this pump in our mind, but it's a, it's our understanding, the clarity of the mind, of our intellect and that way he can give us a new mind, a transforming of our mind, a renewing of our mind. In other words, a change of the thought patterns, the way we think, the way we act, the way we walk, the way we do everything. All of those are transformative actions. Okay, but we need to learn uh, what I tell you this was about was the vastness of God compared to anything that we have uh, insurmountable changes that we would have to perform this is something we can't do it has to be done supernaturally and this gives us the power this gives us authority this gives us ability to become the sons of God he said to them that believed upon him those that received him to them he gave power to become sons of God and that word power, I was telling you there, we wanted to look at it. And he gave us the ability to become the sons of God. 
within that ability, we have to do certain things. There's humility or humbling ourselves. There's repentance in that. And so how do we accomplish this gigantuan task of being able to be, say, not more mere man, but the sons of God, which carries a far different, a far different, uh, what I want to, I'm trying to stumble for a word. It carries a, a, a far different amount of responsibility, of, of mount, amount of characteristics, a, a amount of living, a amount of character that we should have to be sons of God. If we're to be called sons of God, it takes um, to be able to wield that power. That's why when he asked Pete, he says, how would you like to have those things that you say? And that Peter, I mean, Jesus had spoke to the fig tree. He had cursed the fig tree, and the next day he came, and it withered away. And he said, how would you like to be able to speak to that mountain, and it would move and be cast into the sea? But along with granting us that ability, uh, granting us that power and authority in our life, which is a, a ginormous responsibility that we can't comprehend what all that would entail as to being sons of God, speaking things into existence, speaking and receiving. How many times would we cast, go around casting mountains in the sea without a clear understanding of what we're doing or whatever. That's the same thing It happens with prayer. He gave us another instrument of acquisition, and that is to acquire anything that we ask for. As sons of God, he says, if you ask for anything in Jesus' name, the Father will do that. And the way to do that, to, to acquiesce, to, to receive those things, is to ask in prayer. And the Father do it. But how many a times we ask and pray and don't receive that what we ask it for? Because of the motivation of the purpose in which we are asking. Is it to consume it upon our own lust? Is it to fulfill our desires and pleasure? What's the motivating factor in which we're asking for that we ask from God? Is it out of pride, grandiosity. What reason are we asking God to supply this need or this healing, the gift of healing? All of these things, all, there were a lot of spiritual gifts the Corinthian church possessed. It was one of the most blessed church, churches it was. But it was, he called it a kernel church. There were babes in knowledge and understanding. And Peter says, First Peter, it says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil, speaking as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, we have to have an understanding and a knowledge and a working understanding of God and the will of God to be able to ask for the things and that he gives to us because the desires God plants in our hearts and our minds 
are different from the things of the world or from the daydreamings of the world and the things that we would ask for, are we asking for those things in conjunction with the will of God, the kingdom of God? Is this a necessity to help build up and promote his kingdom? Does this magnify God or glorify God? When Jesus was going to heal Lazarus and he stayed away the three days and he was allowed to lay in the tomb for three days and Jesus said that that illness or that sleepiness, that was all what it was to show that God was, he was the God of the resurrection, that he was the resurrection. The man that was born blind and the disciples asked him, why was this man born blind had his mother sin or had his father sin and Jesus said why had anybody had to sin for this to be had happened in other words that was part of God's will for that man to be born blind so that Jesus would come along at that time and that he would heal him and give him the sight in other words, he was born that way so that it would glorify God. It would magnify God in the people's eyesight. That's what all of his miracles and his workings and feedings of the thousands was to do, was to magnify and glorify God. So that's why I say all of our actions, all of the things we do, and why we shouldn't grow weary in well-doing is that we're going around doing good to magnify God and help establish the kingdom of God walking by faith. It's a faith walk. So we must be led by the Spirit of God to accomplish these things by faith because those that are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So we have to be able to distinguish between spirits. Everything that we do or attempt to do is not the spirit of God. That's why he said there be many of spirits and many of gods. Try the spirits to see whether they be of God. We have to have a distinction of be able to have the knowledge of good and evil. That's what Adam brought into the world when he partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with this introduction of evil into the world came something that man was going to have to work in conjunction with God to eradicate evil from the world. We will go kick the prince of this world out. We will go bruise his head. He was going to bruise our heel, but we was going to bruise his head. In other words, we was going to be overcomers in Christ Jesus. We will go accomplish this by the Spirit of God. It's not a carnal battle that we're waging here. So we must learn to fight. We must learn to wage war. And it's a spiritual battle. And the church puts the battle in array. That's why Jesus said, if this fire is already kindled when he comes, good. In other words, we're to do. So if we look back in the, the time of Joshua that when the older generation had passed it away, the younger generation didn't know how to do battle. And God had left some of the enemies in the portions of the land, the Hittites and some of the people in the upper portions of Dan and other portions, was to prove to people. That's one reason Satan is in the world today, is to help us 
to prove us. There are greater works that we need to do. Jesus, that's why Jesus says, greater works you shall do because I go to, to my Father. So these works that we are doing are to glorify God. All of the apostles' healings, all of the things that they were doing, they should have rejoiced because their names was written in heaven. Not because they could cast out demons, not because that they could heal the sick, not because of any work that they were doing. Those works were to magnify God and glorify him and not themselves. Just like with the church, he left the gifts of the church, the fivefold ministry. He left the teaching gifts and all of those administrative gifts in the church for helps to present the church without a spot or a blemish, but it's also for the perfecting of the saints to bring them into a unity of the faith and a, a unity of spirit to where we are all working to glorify God. That's the aim of man, is to glorify and magnify God upon the earth, not seeking our own reputation or anything. So to do this, to war, we must be his disciples and take up our cross and follow after him. It causes us a, a denial of self, for us to deny ourselves who we are, what we are, and everything, that we are children of God, so we present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, and that's where I will read in Scripture, John 3.30, comes from where John says, he must increase and I must decrease, so we're not doing things to bring glory or magnification to ourselves and lifts us up to be something. That's where the Pharisees' error, when they're fasting and People look at them and look up to them. Well, they've received their reward. They've gotten what they wanted. They wanted the accolades of man. They wanted the respect of man. They wanted the praise of men. And so that's what they've gotten. They've gotten their rewards. But Jesus says he was going to bring his reward with him. And he was going to reward each one. He says, the 10 verses, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. That work that's before him, he's bringing us rewards into the kingdom, and he had given those to his saints of God. Now, when he said his strong arm was to do this, and that we know the arm and the rod, all of that's are instruments of God's working in his power through his omniscience. It's not by power, not by might. But it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. So he gives us of his spirit to fulfill his, his walk against his bidding, in other words. We're to do the bidding of God. So John had to humble himself. John did in, didn't do any miracles now. He was preaching. And that's where our impact has to be in preaching and teaching the word of God. He says, go about into all the nations preaching and teaching, making the disciples and followers. So the ultimate goal as our focus has to be the focus he had, and that was going about preaching the good news, the good tidings, the gospel, that we had been redeemed and God had made a way back and God had reconciled man back unto himself, that God was in Christ reconciling man unto himself and that's what we're to promote. That's what we're to build up. That God has warned that this earth, this world is passing away. There's a new heaven and a new earth emerging. There's a recreation. That same God that 
looked upon the earth and it was void and formless and without shape. He's the one who holds the earth in the hollow of his hand. All of the waters, he's able to move upon those same waters and upon the earth to recreate the earth anew. But he's recreating us anew. We are being regenerated. We're being turned into a spiritual being, into sons of God. Now the final process of that operation in which our vile bodies are changed is one of the last portions of that operation when death is swallowed up and the corruptible is changed into incorruptible, the mortal into immortal, immortality we will receive at that time. But in a spiritual sense, by faith, we've received that already because we believe on the Son of God. So to grow strong, we must start eating an imbibing of His Word to assimilate His Word into ourselves. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. Well, that Word, just like He told Ezekiel and the rest of the prophets, is a roll. The scrolls was made in a roll in those days. And He says, eat the roll, eat the whole roll. So that's how we live. Not by bread, not by the physical things. We must supply nutrients just to this physical body and have an appetite to live. But our hunger and thirst should be after righteousness for righteousness sake. And that's how we live by every word that proceeded out the mouth of God. That's the more endurable thing, the assimilation of his word. Taking of his word, learning of him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So the burdens and the travesties and all of these things in life, all of the cares of life, we cast them upon him. We, he says, cast all of your cares upon me, one who cares for you. So if we've cast those cares upon him, what are we doing as the people are in the parable of the sower, where the cares of this life and the things of this world proceed to choke the word out of people? How does that happen? You must have done like Demas. You must have turned the loose at some point to grasp the world and start worrying about the things in this life in living contrary, contradicting what you say you believe. You remember he says put away hypocrisy. So hypocrisy, we don't want to say one thing and live a different way. That was the problem with the Pharisees. He says beware of the living of the Pharisees. That's the problem with this nation in whom is a drop in the bucket, like a drop of water in the bucket, is this nation we live in. We might look at it as an all-powerful nation and all-wise nation, but to God, it's minuscule. It is nothing. The nations are of, of nothing. They are vanity to him. So we, why would we fear a government or a nation that is nothing to God? Just think if Job came in to question God and focus upon, he had begun to lose things and things began to go on in Job's life and he approached and wanted counsel with God. 
Herein lies the error of Job desiring counsel of God. And Job, he never did get that counsel with God. Jesus didn't seek that counsel. That's how what the man that we should emulate, even though it says Job was a perfect and upright man. Let's emulate Jesus Christ because he says if there is any other way, he says, that this could be done, let it be. He said, but nevertheless, thy will be done. This is the cup I have to drink of. I'll drink from it. That's what he said. Thy will be done. So whatever circumstances, everything that's going on in the earth, with all of our losses, with all of the sicknesses, and with all our family problems, and all of the things going on, thy will be done. We can't, we can't construct this. We just want God to, we just pray that he give wisdom and knowledge and understanding, give us strength to go through these things. All of those are part of his will. All of those things that we have to bear. Give us an understanding. We don't want to do like Job and speak foolishly and then God calls us for this and asks us, where's our wisdom? Where's our knowledge and understanding? Because we see in the 13th verse, it says, Who had directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, had taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, uh, taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? The answer is no one. That's a rhetorical question. It's no one, no comparison in wisdom and knowledge. So should we question God as to why he's doing something a particular way or whatever? We know that we serve a, 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 a God that's all-knowing, that's all-powerful, and that he cares about us, that he is mindful of man. That's what the scripture asks. David says, who is man that thou art mindful of him? Now we have to look at the magnitude of the just this small universe we live in. If he's controlling it and running it, it's nothing like the deist thought of the deist preacher proclamate in their doctrine or their error, their promulgation or their concept of God that God there was an intelligent designer, there was a God that designed and made the earth, but after he made it, he just let it alone and he's sit back and let it whine or let it run. No, we're serving a God that's involved in the very maintenance of everything here on earth. He said that in the 22nd verse, he says, It is he that set it up on the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretch it out the heavens as a curtain and spread them out as a tent to dwell in. Uh, he says, they shall be planted, yet they shall not be sown. In other words, to some of these inhabitants that's not following what he, the, the pattern that he had set for, there is a day of destruction for them. He's also speaking to Israel, to his people, for those that didn't believe, uh, couldn't grasp the concept of just how large and just how in control he is, the sovereignty of him those he dealt with also. That's why we have to hunger and thirst for righteousness and continually to seek God and let not anything hinder us 
from running this race. There are a lot of weights and sins that will hinder us from running this race. We consistently see God focusing on Job's smallness and lack of knowledge when he comes to talk with Job starting in those the 30-some chapter throughout the 39th chapter when he's asking Job where was he when he laid the foundations of this earth when he established all these things because all those has to be in consideration and just like when a newborn babe that you fed and nourished throughout the time come to think as you get older or whatever that they are more wiser than you that they know more or whatever and they don't realize that we're looking at a uh, analogy of God as, as time goes on. We're not asking for the old past and the old road and the instruction and the wisdom and knowledge from our elders and the old people. So we've lost a proper concept of knowledge of God for going against His Word. That's why I say it's all contained in obedience to His Word. We no longer honor our parents. We no longer honor the elders of the church. The church are no longer ran by elders. It's just like a sports team. They're superstars on the sports team. It's the coach or the quarterback. The, the, everything is individualized upon the individual. Whereas the church is designed around the elders, those elders are leaders of that church, and it's a council, a plurality of elders that run a church, and it's not one televangelist, some mega church with some man that's the center of this attention. And so we've lost any correct concept of God. We've lost a proper perspective in seeing God. We have a faulty or false concept of God. That's the problem within the nation. Uh, when he said those things in verse 12 about measuring the earth in the hollow of his hand or whatever, it was to show a backdrop of the insignificance of mere man, the mere nations. I've read to you those verses where it says the nation is but a drop in the bucket and that he set it up on the nations to stir these things up. It's beyond the second point I would add if this was a second point here would be he's beyond our comprehension to comprehend God. Mere man can't comprehend God and that's what I says. We have to be more than mere man and that's when we we are becoming the sons of God. It's a transformation or renewing our minds. So if he's keeping us from the world and we are coming we're becoming sons of God there has to be a distinction what makes us different from every other man. What makes us different from the world. That's why Peter says, be ye holy. You need to put a difference between what is holy and what is not holy. What is profane. What, what, what desecrates the temple of God. What, what sets us apart. What consecrates us to God. The sanctifying effect is, is word. 17th chapter of John where Jesus says I have sanctified myself and he says now you sanctify them by your word the word has a sanctifying effect if we are part of that process if we are doers of the word it sanctifies us it sets us apart 
it's like the days of the week. You have six days here, and one day that God set apart over here, and He sanctified it. That means it's not like any of the other days. This day He had Hollywood, and He had called His Sabbath day. This is His rest day. This is what distinguishes Him as the Creator. It sets Him apart. Now what man is through human philosophy and all of man's wisdom and knowledge and intellect, he's done grown smarter than God. He's done developed uh, 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 through his, his, his vast realm of knowledge, which is minuscule, which is nothing to God. It's foolishness to God. They said since the resurrection is on this day and all this, they've construed the word of God until to make them a God. And they made a day. They said Sunday is the Sabbath day. That's the day we go holler. Even though we don't see where God's word unsanctifies the day that he had set apart. So you see where I'm saying a faulty line of thinking. So if God had set this one apart to those people of Israel that's following God and know that that's why they went into the captivity, the 70-year captivity, is for not keeping the Sabbath day. Of necessity, it must be some importance of that day, but man thinks that he can take and change that day. So we can't make holy what God hadn't made holy. That's one of his, I was talking, when we had Bible study Thursday, I was talking Thursday about some non-commutable attributes of God some non-transferable things and even the priest speaks of this in Malachi about bearing about holy meat and if you touch something holy does that make it holy that's not a transferable or commutable attribute you can't transfer holiness no man can make anything holy anything God's make crooked who can make it straight only God can make that straight which is crooked only God can make us holy, and he does it through his word. We have to present our body as a living sacrifice unto him. He has to bring this holiness into being. He has to make us holy, and that's what his word does. It sets us apart. That there's a difference in God's people. There was a difference with Daniel and the Hebrew boys. What set them apart was following the true God. That's why I say it showed you the, the, the vastness of the size of the, the, the magnitude of God that there couldn't be room for anyone else outside of God. The, I'll talk of, let me talk about that in a different point. But anyhow, the comprehension of God, he's beyond us being able to understand him. That's why in the book of Luke, the 25th chapter, I think the 49th verse, where it says, then he opened the understanding whereby they could understand the scriptures. God has to open our minds, and that's why I say he gives us a new heart that gives us the ability to understand and comprehend God. In the book of 1 Timothy, the third chapter of 1 Timothy, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Lift up that high 
than eyes upon high. So the mystery of iniquity has to be revealed unto us. God has to show. That's why I was telling you this. We have to seek God because He has hidden this in earthen vessels and He had given us the Word of God. And that's why I say we have to proclaim the Word of God and preach the Gospel because that's how it's transferred orally. It's spoken and hearing faith coming by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So this is the process whereby God's Word is transferred from one to another. And in the book of Colossians, and I told you he gave us preachers and teachers. He said pastors and teachers in the church to instruct the body of Christ. Uh, Colossians, the first chapter, uh, the 24th verse, it says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Uh, Even the mystery which had been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest unto his saints. What it is, it's made manifest unto his saints. He says, which I am a minister of, uh, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which had been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to the saints, to the saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto whereunto I also labor, striving according to his workings, which worketh mightily in me. So that spirit is working to deliver that gospel to instruct the body of Christ of the mysteries. And this is not like Matlock or Paramason or some mystery novel that someone would write. Uh, Gresham or anybody, some mystery, something to untangle or unwind. This has to be shown unto you. It has to be revealed. And how do we receive that? By the revelation of Jesus Christ. He had sent Jesus to reveal God unto us. He shows us, as Thomas says, show us the Father. I ask you plain, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, by this process of my discipleship of you these last years, you have seen the Father. Because I represent the Father. I'm express image And in me, the fullness of the Godhead would dwell bodily. So what happens is Christ is here. And as God is preached and taught to us, Christ is being formed in us, in his image, in his likeness. That's what the preaching and teaching accomplishes. And Peter, he says, Peter, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? He says, Thou art the Son of God. Now he says, Peter, flesh and blood hadn't revealed that unto me. My Father which is in heaven had shown that. See, we have to come to God 
by the process of the way that he had sent, and it's a very narrow road. It's a narrow road, it's a narrow way, even though the vastness of this universe, the vastness and of God, we have to start enlarging God and magnifying Him through preaching and teaching. It grows from in like that leaven, and that's the only time leaven has been shown to be good. It says that plant with a little leaven and it grew to be the largest plant of all plants is as that mustard seed faith. It had grew and everything came in the dwell up up on it. All governments shall come unto Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, if we look in the book of Daniel, when that, that death that he died, that that mountain that's going to be shaped without hands, that government of Christ that's arising, it's not by the will of man. This is the Spirit of God that's establishing these things. The Spirit do it yet work. God is at work within the nations, within everything, but He's such a, a, a magnificent God that He's able to look and I guess history and people said these things, try to say things and get you the wrong analogies. They say the devil is in the detail, but Jesus already says, without me you can do nothing. You have to give account of every idle word. So if those aren't the details, we see that he sees everything. But he's judging that he's forming the kingdom of God and if no sin wouldn't enter in. It's no way you hang on to bitterness and resentfulness. Anything that's in you, that has to be exercised out. In other words, cut out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with no hands or no if you have to cut your tongue out or put out your eyes or whatever. If that's what's going to require a cleansed body, a purged body because no cancers enter in, in there. So when he says the works, he says no liars, no backbiters. All of these, notice that backbiters and liars are put in the same category with murderers. So no sin should any end. So that omniscience, that omnipresence of God, but then we see one other thing here of what we need to look at that that's within God, and that's the omnipresence of God. We've seen this vastness, but when I say omnipresence, Satan is not omnipresence. And I think that's where when he left and went into darkness and pride entered in, that's when he couldn't feel the presence of God. God was still on the throne, but he thought he could exalt himself and sit on the throne and overthrow God. And that's what except that's what separates us from God. It's our iniquity, our sin. When we sin, we can't feel the presence of God the way we should feel it. That's why it says quench not a grieve not the spirit. We shouldn't even commit those little sins like little as we call them white lies. We shouldn't Jokes of foolish talking, all of these things can move us away from God's presence, even though God is omnipresent. 
we had left God. He hadn't left us, but that connotes a larger a larger sphere of understanding of God that we can't delve into this morning. But the vastness of God in His creation and the created abilities is in the book of Job. But in Second Chronicles we hear oh, something from Solomon here. The second chapter in the fifth verse says, But who is able to build him a house seeing that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house save only to burn sacrifice before him? I can't really build him a house, but actually what we are, we are the temple of the living God. And God's going to come to live in and dwell in us. That means is he can't live in an unclean temple, so he has to purge us and we have to purge. We have to mortify our body. We have to die to self. Those are the workings that we we'll, we should do. That's the work he says he's going to bring along the work. But the rewards that we receive from doing those works. That's why I say we were created for doing good works. But we need the spirit in us to do those works. Well, but as he's describing this. And you have to read through the book of Job. Some of his telling to Job of some of the things. Which, which is much larger. But. As students of the Bible, a lot of times you'll know what I'm referring to, but if you're just living in the world and all of the world, and you expect the preacher to give it to you in a 45-minute or a half an hour preaching or teaching, you seriously you have a flawed understanding of concept of the Word of God, of the theology. In other words, we have to study this. And that's why it says he must increase in our lives. The magnified God is we must die to self. So that's our timing in everything. Redeeming the time is, like I said on a Sabbath, I have that not blocked in for a whole lot of other stuff because that's my rest day in the Lord. I get, And if I'm giving him more time on the weekend, and that day is for the Lord, can you imagine how upset I is when people ask me to do things, or when things come up on the Sabbath because... That's a time set aside, a meeting time for me and God and for me to rest in God. Now, for the explanation of the Sabbath we've done on different teachings and things and we will continue to do. But the vastness of God here, and, and I'm trying to say, when we say water permeates a something. It, it goes through it. It's permeated. It goes through if we saturate something with water whether we can understanding that that gets in and that saturates, that sometimes super saturates a, a place, a thing, or whatever it may be. And I don't want to get into physics or anything about in between the molecules and within deaths and everything. But God, as I was telling you Thursday, is let me can I say it? Let me just say this for the sake of understanding. It's outside of his creation. Even though all of these things that Christ spoke in the, into existence, into being, is as nothing. So his creation is really not a part of God because no parts of God could be destroyed. And if he's gonna take away the creation, all of this is in our minds to give us an understanding of the world. So when I say the world is passing away and he's going to destroy the world, 
I don't want to make it inclusive of God and say, well, that portion of God will be destroyed because God is perfect. There is no part of him that is flawed. So he's standing outside of his creation. He's not a part of creation. In other words, you go in the church, adds or takes away nothing from God. When he says he felt his virtue leave from out of him when the woman grabbed him and it drew up on his faith, but it's not a, it wasn't a reduction of his faith or whatever, but just that his faith empowers whatever it is and whatever touches him becomes faith. His heart, it says your faith has made you whole. But it doesn't take away anything from Jesus. It doesn't take, we can't take anything away from God. It's just like time. Time is for our understanding and God sets outside of time one day is a thousand years with God, but time is for our understanding or whatever. He's the great I am. God just exists. We can't put a time on God. I was reading by the kept. They caught some a guy that did a hit and run or whatever with these cameras. Well, God is, and like I said, with comparison and parables and things fail when you take it to a, a higher degree. So let me use this just as an illustration. With that red light camera and those cams, they were able to solve the crime. They went back to a certain time sequence in which he was in that area or whatever, and the cameras caught him. It's like on the Minority Report with Tom Cruise, them catching people before they commit the crime or whatever. Well, God sees all and is all-knowing that nothing goes beyond God, and David says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thine presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thine hand lead me, and thine right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. There's no light in darkness with God. All of these are for our understanding. And I, and I don't want to get into a theological debate here or whatever. But we could kind of see when God created the time and the seasons and all of this called we get into arguments and things and servants of God shouldn't argue about certain things or whatever but with this creation do you know in two or three days of creation time really didn't exist God was saying the night and the day for our understanding and it falls to the advantage of those with that promote the gap theory or whatever because what it was the third day I don't want to get to a theological argument here about this, but if you turn to Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, and it said, uh, And the earth brought forth, 12 verse, grass, and every herb yielding seed after its kind, and the trees yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament, firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night 
and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule that night. He made the stars also. So if it wasn't to that fourth day, and it says after he made all those things, God said, let the firmament heal these things. And if that was the fourth or the fifth day, and the evening and the morning was the fourth day, if that was the fourth day, and he had created all of those time-keeping elements, he separated the day from the night, he separated the stars, and he set the stars and the moon and everything, how would you keep time before that time, those two or three other days of creation? So that's what I say. We get into arguments and trying to explain God or defend God, and God isn't into proving himself to man. We are ought to be about hungering and thirsting for righteousness in those things that give us a better knowledge and understanding, and God has given us wisdom to learn of him. And so we see that God hadn't set those until the fourth day. So with the big gap and all of these theories and everything, it doesn't disprove God, and God needs no defending or protection. He's like a roaring lion. Just let him loose. What's going to contain him? There's Leviathan out there. Can Leviathan do anything to God? He's already showed you his magnitude, his vastness, his omnipresence or whatever. So I think that's where we get bogged down as a people or whatever, by following traditions and teachings and certain dogmas that maybe wasn't brought to light during that time, that God has shed a greater light on at this time, and that if we can believe, is anything too hard for God? We know that nothing is too hard for God. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe it. All things. All things. That doesn't limit it to anything. His strength lies within his spirit. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts shall perform this. Then he answered and spake unto Jerubbabel. This is not, this is the saying. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So all of these things are happening by the Spirit of God, and he had given us power to become the sons of God. He had given us all of that ability, but it has to be harnessed. That's where meekness come in. It's power under constraint of control. Moses had to become one of the meekest men on the earth. It's not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus was very good and gentle with little children. And that's why he talks about holding the small ewe lamb, the small lambs in his bosom, and leading the ewe lambs that are pregnant with, with other lambs. Gentleness. Are we gentle with people? Is that a characteristic of his uh, or we are meek people under God. So in comparisons and comparability, who shall we be likened unto? 
We're trying to be made in His image and His likeness. We're trying to imitate Christ, be as Him. Heavenly Father.